Tonight's Bible reading comes from Jonah chapter 3 and it finishes in chapter 4 verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that they did when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I'd love it if you have your Bibles open uh, to Jonah. We're walking pretty uh, closely through that tonight. Uh, We're doing a a short uh, three-week series in the lead-up to Christmas this year uh, with the goal of um, preparing us for Christmas, right? for for setting us up for what Christmas is. Um, uh, The two series aims are these, uh, that we affirm what we are celebrating at Christmas. That's number one. What What are we celebrating at Christmas? What's going on? What's it all about? And the second one, uh, that we'd be equipped for mission at Christmas time. Um, Christmas is a unique time for, uh, for so many reasons, but uh, for particularly missional opportunities, right? At Christmas, uh, you have dinner with people that you might only see once a year. Um, you sit down and eat food with them for a couple of hours. Uh, and you have conversations with them that you wouldn't have the rest of the year. What an amazing opportunity to be a representative of Jesus in that space. And so we're going to think about what that looks like uh, this year. A lot of that, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll jump in and pray. And Father, you are big and we are small. Thanks for being our Lord of all. Uh, thank you so much uh, yeah, for Christmas. Thank you for the moment that is a celebration of so much good, of you coming into the world. We might see things clearly. Uh, we might hold to truth and we might know the way forward. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question we're answering tonight uh, is the one on the previous slide. Uh, does the world need Christmas? Does the world need Christmas? Which is uh, really the question, uh, does the world need Jesus to be born? Right? Does the world need Jesus to be born? Because really, uh, Christmas is, uh, in my family, it's uh, uh, Jesus' birthday. So on, on Christmas Day, uh, we have a cake and we sing happy birthday to Jesus. Uh, the kids love it. Um, uh, we don't give presents to Jesus. Yeah, he's not, not like physically there to give them to. But we, you know, we sing happy birthday. And, uh, and so it's a wonderful celebration of that moment. It makes you think, uh, does the world need Jesus to be born? Because why was Jesus born as a baby? Why was Jesus born at all? It would be more efficient to turn up one day, die in the afternoon, come back the next day, world saved, right? If all the, if the only reason that Jesus came into the world was to die on the cross and come back from the dead, 
then he could achieve that in a much more efficient amount of time than 33 years of life. Why does Jesus come into the world? Why does he live for 33 years? What has he come to do? That must be significant. If all he came to do was to die so that we would go to heaven, well, then he could just do that, but he does something different. There must be some reason why he comes into the world. It's not just a quick fix moment. There's a purpose. Jesus doesn't just waste time. There's intentionality about what's going on here. Tonight we're going to look in uh, the book of Jonah to help us uh, look forward to that and see something about what that looks like. Um, love to have that open uh, before you. Um, I, until I did this sermon, I didn't really like the book of Jonah. Um, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Um, but now I love it. So, you know, I've learned something tonight. So if no one else does, successful sermon. Tick. Let's jump in. Jonah 3, 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord uh, went and, and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through, through it. Uh, Jonah began by going uh, a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What a positive message for the day, hey? You're all going to die. Your city is going to be overcome. It's all going to fall apart. Nineveh will be overthrown. Just to give us a bit of a, a, a backstory to this, um, to this moment, a bit of context for where we are, uh, it's in terms of God's storyline, um, creation is just off the map up above there, but uh, what's just happened is um, uh, the people of God have separated. There's 12 tribes. Two of the tribes become the southern uh, kingdom of Judah, uh, and the other 10 tribes become the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and Jonah is, being, uh, is hanging around just before, about 60 years before uh, Assyria comes and uh, takes over and destroys the ten tribes of Israel. Why is that a big deal? Um, because Nineveh is one of the great cities of Assyria. Jonah is sent to the nation that would destroy his family, his home, everything that he loves. He is sent to his enemy. He is sent to the ones that will, in the future, hurt him. He is sent to the wicked, the ones that he doesn't like. And so it's this incredible powerful moment where he's going to the enemy. It's not a, not a fun mission trip. It's, it's an intense mission trip, and the message is intense. Uh, just to give you a sense of um, uh, what happens in the first place, uh, he's given the message to go to Nineveh, and then he goes, no, nah, I don't want to go to Nineveh. This is how much he knows. He doesn't like Nineveh, right? Like, they're the enemy, they're the evil ones. He wants to go the other way, so he's the one. He starts traveling off to Tarshish, which is way over, way over left over there, um, yeah, and Nineveh's all the way back here. That's the point of the story where he gets thrown in the water, gets in the fish, has a great prayer moment, and then is kicked up on the sand. That's where we are in the story. How good is that for a one-sentence summary of Jonah 1 through 2? And then the response. He comes with this message, and then the response. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. There are 120,000 people in Nineveh. It is not a small thing to say that all of them believed and all of them responded with fasting. All of them responded by putting on sackcloth, which is just clothes made out of sacks. And so their whole, uh, whole being changes, the whole way of life changes. And it changes in three ways. I mean, it's a, this is a highly effective um, uh, missionary trip, right? He comes and he gives a one-sentence sermon and 120,000 people uh, become followers of Jesus. That's a pretty good day. And they, they change in three ways, which is really fascinating. Uh, so the message becomes a catalyst for change and changes three things. The first one 
It changes the belief. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. There's a belief change about truth and what is. Uh, there's a worship change. Uh, they change the way they lead their lives. They, uh, they fast, which means to not eat, which means they stop um, indulging and they stop uh, engaging in things that give them pleasure, to hold off, to cry out to God for mercy, to call out, um, to ask him for help uh, in verse 8. So there's a worship change. And then, interestingly, and I think much more subtly but more fascinating to me, uh, and I think more helpful for us, is there's a social change. Um, uh, what we see that in verse 5, uh, from the greatest to the least, and then in verse 8, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. It's significant because what we know about Jonah from history is, uh, Nineveh, uh, what we know about Nineveh sorry, from history is that uh, Nineveh is a horrible place. It is the place where the rich are very rich and the poor are very poor. It is the place where the oppressed oppress the oppressors and they are happy about it. It is a place where violence and social injustice reign. It is a horrible place to be. In Isaiah 10, it talks about this place being condemned by God uh, to be burnt to the ground. Uh, And then in Nahum, there's a whole book of the Bible committed to um, uh, condemning Nineveh as a place that, uh, that is a horrible place of injustice and horror. But they hear a message, and it's a catalyst for change, where the greatest and the least, the oppressors and the oppressed, are on the same page. Where the rich and the poor are both wearing sackcloth and crying out for mercy. This powerful social change, the, the way they exist, the way they, uh, they are, uh, changes because of this one message. The message was a catalyst for change. Jonah's message given to him by God produces the recognition of the need for change and causes change. And it's fascinating. It's an epic moment, right? 120,000 people. Um, uh, that's an incredible amount of turnaround. Uh, but interestingly, when we look at it in its context, it's a temporary change, right? Which is really important. It's a temporary change. Uh, Jonah's mission, we see a temporary mission change. So the Ninevites, they don't become the people of God. In history, there is no moment where we see that um, a, whole, uh, a whole great city out of Assyria becomes Jewish. There is a moment in which they turn to God, but that moment does not last. Um, there's a couple of reasons we know this. The first one is um, when it says uh, the Ninevites believed God, the word that is used for God there is the word Elohim which is different to the word that would be used by the people of God. They would use the word Yahweh, the Lord, which is a sign of intimacy and love and care, uh, whereas Elohim is just a sign of that God we're really afraid of. It's not a personal term. It's just the boss guy in the sky that we're afraid of. And so they don't turn, they don't become like followers of God. In a moment they believe, but it doesn't hold on. And how else do we know that? Well, we already know that because 60 years later, they destroy, they come and attack the people of God. This God that they believe in in this moment, will they come and attack him later? But what we see in this moment is we see how, uh, how mission works, how a message comes and it changes things, is a catalyst for change. What we see is that uh, we have a type of way of thinking about how Jesus' mission changes us. Jesus coming into the world changes things for us. See, Jesus' mission is both similar and yet distinct from Jonah's. His message is, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. There is change. There's a message that has catalyst for change. 
There's a belief change. Believe the good news. There's a worship change. The time has come. Repent. Turn away from where you were. There's a social change. The kingdom of God has come near. A new dominion, a new way of being, a new king to rule and lead over us. A new way of life. Why does the world need Christmas? Why does the world need Jesus' birth and life? Well, it needs it because we need a catalyst for change. Does the world need Jesus reborn? Absolutely. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus doesn't just bring a message of change. He brings, he is a personal catalyst for change. There's a belief change. He, he reveals the truth of the world. Uh, the truth of the world is revealed in Jesus. Through Jesus' life, uh, like through Zerner's message, a need is recognized. For the Ninevites, um, a word is said and they recognize their place of their under condemnation. It's all going to go badly. In Jesus, we see a life the way humanity was meant to look. We see how life was meant to be lived. We see his generosity, his gentleness, his holiness. And the stories of Jesus is reveals to us, well, us. As we read the Gospels, as we read the stories of him, it reflects back to us and reveals to us how we are not him, how we are unlike him. Reading the stories of Jesus is both a wonderful, rewarding thing because you get to see the wonder of the God that is and a wonderfully terrifying thing because you see how far we are not him. Reading the stories of Jesus is like getting a full body scan and then sitting down with a doctor and they tell you the 10 ways you're going to die in the next 50 years. It penetrates our very souls and reveals to us who we are. It reveals the truth of the world that we exist in. And then uh, the worship change, life, given to us through the work of Jesus. This is the one we get right all the time, right? This is the cross. This is Jesus' death for us, paying for sin, him uh, being a substitute for us uh, in death that we might have life, the punishment we deserve for sin. We get this one. This is the one we understand. Uh, It's the other two that we may not get, that we may not always see. And the last one, uh, social change. He shows us the way to be as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. His life reveals the way to be, the way to be formed, the way to live out life. We see in his life the way to be, the way to love, the way to speak and act against injustice. We get to see the way to be kind to the poor, equal to gender, stand against injustice, uh, stand for truth, love those who are needed of love, care for those who need care. We see in him who God is creating us to be. We see in him what God is doing in us. As we read the stories of Jesus, the Spirit takes those words and transforms us from the inside out so we become more like him. There's a fascinating thing about uh, the way the Ninevites change. Apart from being temporary, it's also based on a very different thing. The Ninevites' social change was out of fear. Right? They're afraid of something, so they were obedient. They were obedient so that it doesn't go bad. And if that's true, then obedience is limited to the threat level uh, being there. As soon as the threat left, well, 60 years later, they were still attacking people and they became the oppressors again. Followers of Jesus are not like that. Obedience is not something we do out of fear of being kicked out of the kingdom of God. It's not something we do out of fear that God will hate us and hurt us. Obedience comes from something else. It comes from the safe place of faith. I call these things uh, fear-based obedience 
and faith-based obedience. Fear-based obedience is this. Ninevites responded to news to avoid danger. Faith-based obedience is followers of Jesus are gifted with a relationship with God and follow him. Let me give a couple examples to just try and capture that. Uh, Fear-based obedience. Let's say you're in the car and you're driving along uh, and you see a sign that says, speed camera ahead. What do you do? You check your speed. You won't worry about your speed until you saw the sign. The threat came and so you responded. You're driving along in your car and, uh, and, and you see a car, another car coming the other way and you see it flashes its lights twice at you during the day. And you go, oh, there's a police car ahead. What do you do? You check your speed. You slow down. There's a threat. It's totally based on fear, right? Totally based on if I'm going to get caught, I don't want to get caught because that's a fine and money and loss and all those horrible things. Whereas faith-based obedience might look like this. The, the speed limits that have been uh, given are set according to the way for life to be most beneficial for all people involved. That They might have put those speed limits in because they did some research and they worked out, this is the best speed you could possibly have in this area. That might be the best speed for you to go so that you're safe and you get to the place you want to go to the quickest, the people in that street are safest, and the people that um, might be travelling in that place are safest as well. Just maybe there is a boss somewhere that's thought about it more than you and I. And we're entrusting ourselves to the boss that he's got it. That's one example. I've got a heaps better example. Um, uh, when I was in year 12, uh, we had a study room. Um, and you got study rooms, year 12, yeah? Yeah, dangerous places. Um, uh, and uh, this study room is representative to me of what fear-based obedience looks like. Because if there was a teacher on duty, it was amazing. There was quiet, there was study, there was efficiency, there was knowledge gained, all the beautiful things the study room is meant to represent. But on the off chance that the teacher left the room, or even better, when the teacher forgot they were on duty in the study room, because he knew you had a good hour after that, bedlam ensued, right? Complete chaos. Um, it was just a wild, wild time. I remember, I don't know how, the, like, so you know how sometimes events happen in your life and you're not sure how you got to them? This, this is one of those moments in my life. Somehow, there was a set of stairs in the study room. And somehow we worked out that if you flipped one of the tables upside down, it fitted exactly in the slot that was the stairs. How does that happen? I don't even know. And somehow, it turns out that I was sitting on that table. And somehow, it turns out that I was sliding down the stairs on that table. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm as baffled as you. Uh, and then, uh, and somehow it turned out that, well, after one person did it, uh, it turns out, well, we all did it. And then somehow out of that situation, uh, we started recording the times for who got the fastest down the stairs. And, uh, and it was under one of the tables, you know, it's recorded. And I have great news for you, I won. <laughs> Which is, uh, it's not a good thing, it was just a sign that I was about 10 kilos heavier than everyone in my class. But, but I won, right? My greatest achievement of the HSC was um, winning that race. Um, uh, but what you see in that moment is complete chaos, right? Uh, if the teacher was there, totally we responded with uh, respect to that place and acknowledged that place and, and studied. Uh, but when the teacher wasn't there, well, we did whatever we wanted. It was only when the threat was there that we stopped and were obedient. But faith-based obedience looked like this, that I might have, and I didn't, but I might have seen the study room as a gift to be enjoyed. I might have gone... Man, what an absolute blessing that my school has given me a space where I can sit down, 
and I can be in quiet, and I can study at peace. And that it might help my, my future, help me flourish, help me uh, do better at my career in the future. It might help me to learn how to be a learner. All those beautiful things. That didn't happen, but imagine if it had. That's faith-based obedience. That space is created as a gift for you. Fear-based obedience limits, uh, is limited to the presence of a threat. Faith-based obedience is freed by the presence of a loving and caring relationship with God. When God calls us into obedience, it's not out of, you're going to get kicked out if you fail. It's not out of, you're a bad person and you need to be right. It's out of, God has already paid for your condemnation. He has already won the fight on the cross. He's already paid for your sin. The victory has already been won. And now you get to enjoy the life he's created for you. You get to enjoy the life he's created for you as your king. Why does the world need Christmas? Why does the world need Jesus' birth? The world needs to have uh, sin revealed to us through Jesus' life. Uh, it needs to see the problem being solved in Jesus' life. And it needs to know the way to exist once Jesus has solved the problem. It needs a belief change in truth, a worship change in life, and a social change in the way. We need Jesus to be born so that we can see the truth of the world and see who God is making us to be. And the question is, who is God making us to be? And Jonah helps us forward with this as well. Who is God making us to be? There's beautiful words in Jonah 4.2 where Jonah says to God, I knew uh, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What a beautiful description of God, right? Just a beautiful, beautiful, powerful image of who God is. What lovely words to say about him. Except that, Jonah is whinging like crazy. He is saying these words and he is pissed off. He is not in a happy place. He's not going, these are good things. He is so angry. How dare you, God? How dare you be gracious and compassionate to these people? How dare you be slow to anger? How dare you be abounding in love? How dare you be a God that relents from sending calamity? When Jesus, uh, not when Jesus, Jesus is much better at this, when Jonah walks through uh, Nineveh and he's saying in 40 days this town will be overthrown, he is not upset about that. He thinks that's a great idea. Because he sees this place and he sees them uh, as evil. He sees them as the enemy. He sees them as a place to be destroyed. They are a threat. They are the enemy. They are not God's people. And so the thing is, Jonah is seeing things through a particular lens, right? He's seeing it through his culture's lens. He sees himself and his tribe uh, in Israel, and he sees that they are the threat above, and so he sees through his cultural lens, they are the enemy. They are evil. They are wrong. At best, maybe he lacks compassion. At best. At absolute worst, he is potentially racist. He's saying, they can't, have, they can't have what I have in God. They can't have this. They can't have this relationship here. So he's seeing things through his cultural lens, the way that he has experienced and been shaped and grown up. He's on mission and he's seeing people through his history. And it turns out when we're on mission, we are shaped by our, uh, our lens as well. We are shaped by our culture to see people in a particular way, to see people in a particular, uh, particular form. 
Christmas is a great example of this, right? Like, um, there's some people at Christmas that you know you're going to have to have a meal with, and you're like, oh, imagine if I didn't have to do that. They're the enemy of Christmas. That forced horrible conversation with that weird aunt. We all have one, it's okay. Um, or, or that moment when uh, you're at Christmas and you think Christmas is the place where I relax and I have peace and I keep the peace. Because you don't want to call a fe- cause offence. You don't want to like, ask awkward questions. You don't want to like, push past the how are you, I'm good, what did you do this year, that's great, let's eat some more chicken. Because we see that moment through our cultural lens of I want to keep the peace. I don't want to cause offence, I don't want to cause a ruckus, I don't want to make any issues, I don't want to cause any arguments here, I want to ask hard questions, I don't want to get too deep in this, I don't want to ask how are you, get the answer good and then go, yeah, but really. And then uh, there's one that I've been thinking through as a cultural lens um, uh, with people, some friends I have that are not Christians. Um, I, I, have this, uh, I know that I should be sharing the gospel with them, um, but they're just really nice. And they just seemed like really, really nice people. And so I have this confrontation in my own heart of like, they just seem like nice people. Why would I want to bring uh, some of the intensity of the gospel to that? Right? And my culture says, they're nice people, leave them alone. Why would I want to bring uh, Jesus into that space where it's going to ask hard questions of their life and maybe their niceness will be disrupted because they have to realize that their lives need to change in Jesus and they need to give everything to him? They're just really nice. So I feel attention. And what's happening in that moment is I'm letting my cultural lens rule the way I see view other people. Rather than letting Jesus' culture shape how I see other people. Rather than letting his kingdom values see how I see, how I, how I see other people. Rather than letting God shape me to see how I see other people. What does God do with Jonah? Well, God with Jonah, he... Um, he and the rest of Jonah 4, uh, he takes him through this experience. And it's an experience that reshapes him and helps him to rethink about who he is. It reshapes his cultural lens. It takes him from a place of, these are evil people that I don't want to be saved, to a place of, these are people that are receiving the compassion of God. How are we reshaped? As we read Jesus' stories, as we engage in his words, the Spirit reshapes our hearts to see people like God sees them to see people like God sees them, to see them with compassion and abounding, abounding love, to see them with the care that they deserve. Slow to anger, not creating calamity. As we read God's word, as we see Jesus, as we see the stories of him and how he engages in conflict and love and care, the spirit moves into our hearts and takes those words and transforms us to be different. Let me give you an example uh, from me, try and capture that a little bit. Um, I, uh, I am a raging introvert and those two words should not go together but they do uh, my wife uh, knows this as a gift to me my last two birthdays um, she's come up to me and said Miles, would you like to go to a cafe for two hours and read a book by yourself my response was I love you thank you so much um, uh, and um, for a, a large part of my growing up and being a teenager and, uh, and being a young adult even uh, um, uh, what that meant was in my introvertedness I loved my alone time uh, and what that meant was that uh, other people were uh, the enemy 
They were the enemy to my introvert happiness. They were the enemy to uh, my space and peace. Um, uh, there's a great irony about uh, that now. Is um, I'm a youth pastor, and I hang out with more teenagers now than I did when I was a teenager. Um, I've seen uh, something change in me. I've seen as I have uh, grown in Jesus, as I've read his stories, that God has built in me a, a heart that leans towards compassion for others. I'm still introverted. I haven't lost it. Uh, but uh, I am more willing to sacrifice my energy for people than ever before. Um, I am more willing to uh, give up those moments. See, I have um, a transformation from information. Uh, I've seen who Jesus is, and the Spirit has changed me to go, actually, I'm going to give up a bit more time here. I'm going to lean into this situation. I'm going to talk to these people. I'm going to be an introvert that like, tries to love people. What a concept. And that is not a change that would happen if I was not following Jesus. Um, I'm still an introvert. Tomorrow I will not talk to anyone uh, because I've preached all day and it feels like I've talked to 500 people in one day and it's just a lot of people. But there are things about me that God is reshaping for his glory where he's helping me to see people like he sees them. Where people cease to become the enemy to my introvert happiness and there became wonderful opportunities for me to love people. There are things about you that are from your cultural lens. They are shaping how you see other people. They are stopping you from sharing the gospel. They are stopping you from serving others. They are stopping you from leaning in and asking hard questions in love. What we need is to be reshaped by the stories of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to love like he loves. God is making us to people who love like he does. Christmas is an incredible opportunity for mission. Uh, we see people that we only see once a year. We eat meals together. Uh, we serve each other. Christmas is a mission season. The first step for being equipped on mission is uh, not necessarily tools. I love tools that help you share the gospel. They're awesome. It's hard to share the gospel if you don't know the gospel. Those are really important things. But the first step, the very first step to a mission at Christmas is not necessarily a tool. It's that your heart would so long to share with someone else that you can't help it. That you would see people like God sees them. That we'd walk into that difficult family situation and go, I get to be compassionate and abounding in love today because that is what God would be in this situation. Spirit, be with me, walk with me, guide me in how to speak and act in this place. We meet those relatives you see once a year and you have a wonderful opportunity to be like, I'm here with you. I want to love you so well in this moment because God wants to love you so well in this moment. May God shape us by his spirit to love others like he does, to have compassion, to have love, to have mercy. As those who need the truth to believe, as those who need life as a gift to save us from death, as those who need to be guided in the way, does the world need Jesus' birth and life? Absolutely so we can see the truth to believe, so we can be given life to worship in, and so we can know the way to be. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that we get to meet you and see you clearly. Father, reshape us by the power of your story that we might be built into people that are filled with compassion, abounding in love, slow to anger, 
who are seeking the best for those we meet. May you reshape us to be and see like you. In Jesus' name, amen.